future trends, deep insights, industry leaders. This is the iGaming Next podcast with your host, Pierre Lint. This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Solutions, the leading iGaming PAM platform with a modular approach, including many benefits like a fast, secure, and scalable API-based platform integrated with all major third-party products and services. Make sure you head over to Pragmatic Solutions and join our smart thinking. And good afternoon, good afternoon, Tomas. I am very jealous of your background view here of the, of the skyline of Miami. How are you doing over there today? I'm doing great, keeping warm and looking forward to the discussion. That's fantastic, that's fantastic. And I, I want to start this conversation today with a bit of a story because I think that I discovered and invented microbetting before anyone else, okay? So, so hang with me here. But it was maybe in a little bit of a different form because I remember back in, I think it was like 2010 or I can't remember when the Winter Olympics was, but it was like around that time. Um, me and my friend Emil, we used to have this uh, uh, this really good uh, kind of like format of uh, watching the Winter Olympics at where we would go and we would withdraw like $52 bills. So in Sweden, we have like the $2 bill. Um, we would we would just have like 50 of these each and we would watch the Winter Olympics. It could be anything like uh, uh, it, 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 it could be uh, one of the skiing things, ice hockey. Uh, it doesn't matter. Like, we would watch it and we would just make these small bets all the time. Like, uh, you know, who, like, is it going to fall the next one? Okay, we bet two to euro. You know, is it, is it going to, is it going to do the backflip in the right way? Okay, two. And these two dollar bills would just fly back and forth for like two weeks straight. And it was such a, it was like the most fond memory I have from like that uh, time. And so I just want to mention here that uh, this um, micro betting thing has uh, been going on in the Linda household for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it's a great story, right? I think it's one of the funnest ways to consume sport. And uh, our Genesis story is not too dissimilar. That's that's how I prefer to watch football, which is my favorite sport, and, and that football in the European sense, football. Um, and the thesis behind starting the company was traditional sports betting ultimately is a super user product, right? You need to have a high degree of confidence, in uh, all the lines that you're looking at, you're browsing this array of odds and trying to calculate probabilities, and then you make a bet and you have to wait two hours or three hours. It's not as fun, right? It's not as fun and it's not as accessible to a casual user like myself. And that was the thesis behind why we started. Uh, We basically said, let's make it instantly gratifying. Let's make it social. And let's make it such where a person can consume it a little bit more mindlessly with less cognitive and physical effort, right? So the most common form of gaming out there today is slots. And there's a reason for that. It doesn't take a lot of skill and it doesn't. T- there's no barrier to entry. So how do we make sports betting a little bit more accessible and a lot more fun for people as they watch sports? Right, right, right. And Thomas, so you're obviously the founder and the CEO of Kira Sports uh, here. Then. So uh, obviously, as most people have figured out by now, this is uh, a venture into the uh, micro-betting uh, products space that we are seeing emerging now. And uh, can you just talk a little bit more, Thomas, of um, like, you, you are still pre-product in Kira Sports, uh, but can you talk a little bit about um, uh, how your efforts and strides uh, have been going so far. You started a company just before the pandemic in 2020. Uh, you raised capital a couple of times. Um, talk about the journey so far with Curious Sports. 
Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say that we're pre-product. We are pre-real money product because right, we're sitting right. on a couple of uh, gaming applications and vendor applications in, in various jurisdictions. But we've been live, as you said, since February 2020. Um, <laughs> and the, th the thesis and the product has actually remained the same throughout the whole journey. And so what we were setting out to do back then was have people watch a hockey game. So we launched with the New York Islanders in, in free-to-play space and curate highly contextual binary micro bets throughout that game. So if there was a power play, we would curate a over under two and a half shots on this power play type market. And you can kind of assess for yourself. Do you think they're going to have two shots or three shots or four? And typically that market would resolve in two minutes, right? So it was nice, fun, easy. And within those two minutes, we would deploy one more market on a penalty or an offside or something like that. And so keeping fans engaged with a curated binary micro betting experience was the thesis back then and what we launched with. And luckily for us, we've seen a lot of traction in the free-to-play space. So we work with numerous NBA, NFL, NHL, collegiate, MLB teams on the free-to-play side. And over the last year or so, um, in tandem with some of our fundraising efforts, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, have started to see a lot of interest and a lot of uh, traction in the real money space to basically productize as a real money offering. Right, right, right. And um, if we roll back the tape, uh, say a year or two years, uh, obviously there is a major competitor here, which is uh, SimpleBet, uh, who is currently live here at, and most people know um, about the B2C operation uh, that is closely connected to SimpleBet, which is uh, better, which is partly mm -hmm. funded by um, Jake Paul, uh, of course, the controversial YouTube streamer, um, <coughs> to say the least. Uh, but, um, you know, rolling back the tape a bit, when people started talking about this uh, micro-betting uh, product, um, part of the critique, I suppose, or the expectation was like, is this product going to be sticky enough? Uh, are players going to stick around? I think uh, you you can probably feel the same much better than me, but uh, also question marks around latency issues and so on and so forth. Um, at this stage in you know January 2022, do you feel that these kind of doubts against the, this product has been put to rest, or are there still um, are there are there still parts uh, of this product that needs to prove itself, say, or improve? I mean, look, I, I don't want to speak to the uh, simple bet numbers, but they seem to be incredible, right? Uh, from what they've published to date, I think stickiness is definitely not a um, concern for anybody, uh, and I think it stems again from the fact that this is the most enjoyable way to bet on sports as you watch the game micro betting is not a pre-game activity it makes no sense to micro bet before the game starts but when you turn on that tv and you're watching that broadcast i think uh, an easy example is if lebron james scores three three-pointers in a row you're not thinking about his over under total points for the game that's that's a lot less relevant for you but betting on the fact that he will score his fourth three-pointer in a row is a lot more exciting, engaging, and creates more velocity to your liquidity, right? So it's your example of the $2 bills, right? You're either going to lose it or win it. And if you win it, you go again, and you go again, and you go again until, you're, um, until your stack of $2 bills is done. And typically it's, you know, and again, for us in a binary context, because I think that's one of the difference between us and SimpleBet is all of our markets are binary. We don't have a market that has five or six outcomes, right? So it's a lot less... Yeah, probably yes or no, you're going basically. to win. Exactly. Yes or no, over, under, foul, yeah. shots, throw mm -hmm. in, etc. Yeah. Um, so you will lose some and win some and 
statistically speaking, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to lose your hundred dollars if you're making two dollar bets, right? But but you're gonna have a lot of fun just like you did with your friend during the Olympics. Yeah, for sure. So so you feel that uh, t- today is there still anything in the product that is unresolved, so to say, um, in in kind of the micro betting uh, kind of proposal in itself, or do you feel again that today? Uh, we are at the point where the the product is proven. There isn't really any major issues, so to say, or any areas of debate. I think the, point that the product is really proven. Uh, what is not necessarily there yet is the latency of the broadcast. So it's kind of not as fun to bet on something that you haven't seen yet, right? So football is a great example. If there's a penalty, you have to deploy that market in real time as soon as the stats come in. But the person in the U.S. might be on a 45-second delay, so they haven't seen the foul yet. And so it's, it becomes kind of disconnected right. from the first screen. But speaking kind of five years from now, I, you know, is, is the latency on TV broadcast going to get greater or shorter? Most likely it's going to get shorter, right, as technology adopts and evolves. And so I think that's probably the biggest hurdle from a user experience standpoint. I think as a product and its uh, ability to generate value both for the end users and for the operators, I think that those questions have been put to rest. Right, right. So on the latency issue, uh, so say today in, in football, for example, the 45 second delay, that essentially um, uh, limits the product on what type of uh, bets that you can offer in real time, so to say. But there's still possibilities. Yeah, and you can compensate for certain things, right? Like, uh, you know, you don't necessarily need to have markets that are real time so for example if there's a game happening between barcelona and real madrid and the game starts out with a lot of fouls and so each team has 10 fouls but then over the next 10 minutes there are no fouls and so you can say well which team is going to commit the next foul starting at this particular moment in the game right so then the expectation is that okay i'm not going to wait three hours for that to resolve but i might have to wait two minutes or something like that right yeah yeah, yeah. so you can kind of cross-reference the uh, the position that the people are in during the broadcast and the position that you're in as a as an absorber of the you know bet radar or bet genius stats and figure out what's a nice intuitive way to still make an exciting market without jeopardizing the fun factor yeah yeah no, no, fair enough fair enough and are there are the sports do you think that will perform better than others uh, with this type of product is uh, I, I suppose as you said you d- you've done the kind of free-to-play version of this already so you would see uh, i suppose uh, some interesting trends there great question because i used to be of the school of thought that american sports were going to be the best yeah and naturally because there's stop and goes and lots of different stats yeah. that people can bet on but as we've built our football or soccer product uh which is live now and you know, welcome anyone that's interested. We're welcome to do a demo for you. It's actually a lot better than I thought we could ever make it to be because there's still a lot happening. The sport becomes, it's almost like the random number generator, right? And what we build is kind of the client, the game, the slot machine on top of it, right? But there's a lot happening in football, even when it's not happening. You know, if, if both teams are attacking well, for example, you can make that into, hey, each team just had 10 dangerous attacks in the last five minutes. You know, which one is going to take the next shot? Or will there be a shot from outside the box? And, and that still creates a bit of an invest, uh, an emotional investment on the user side in kind of what happens next, right? Depending on who's on the field or if there's a player that you love, you know, I'm sure you're a fan of uh, Haaland. You know, if, if I gave you a Haaland market, like, will you have a header? You uh, now we're talking Norwegian players here. Well, I'm Swedish. <laughs> 
Oh, uh, yeah, Slatan Ibrahimovic we are talking about. He's the number oh, one, okay? Yeah. The king, the king. So I think actually they're, they're all pretty good. It's, it's really the art and craft that goes into it. And I think that's another distinction between us and Simple Bed. I think with Simple Bed, it's, um, I, I don't want to speak too much on, on their product, but it's okay. a lot of kind of predefined markets, right? That, that are, you know, like outcome of the next possession outcome of the next possession with us it's not pre-scripted it's sort of being extrapolated from what is happening in the game right so our markets we deploy you know we have about a couple hundred thousand permutations of different markets throughout the game and so we kind of pick out the best one and typically it's grounded in what's happening in the game right so it's less so a predefined one and more so something just happened or something hasn't happened right and and that becomes a lot more uh, exciting for the user right so for you Looking at uh, this product, uh, you know, you talk about uh, the North American market and obviously, again, you know, simple, but American startup, you get you based in Miami, obviously, but you are saying that uh, this doesn't necessarily uh, have to uh, only be relevant to uh, North American sports, which is like stop and start based usually, but actually this can become a global product um, uh, as well. And that's perhaps what you are looking at as well. So, so just following up on that question, um, what's, what's your strategy looking like in that regard? Are you focusing predominantly still on the U S or the world is your oyster type of thing today? The, the world is definitely our oyster. And, you know, my first uh, venture into the European kind of gaming space was last year when I went to SBC and I just opened, actually it was WGS correction right that was the first conference that i attended yeah we met over there yes yeah that's right and and so (laughs) my eyes just opened to how much more mature and just how much business there was to do globally uh because you know when you when you grow up in the u.s you kind of have these blinders on right you think the u.s market is the market but i think with gaming it's really not and there are a lot of mature operators and industries outside of the u.s and so we've seen that trajectory and that was part of a, a happy outcome for me because, as I said, you know, for me, football is, is my sport, right? So I always wanted to productize for football, and football is 90-something percent of all the volume out, out, yeah. outside of you know, the U.S. So it's been great because we were able to focus on something that I was personally passionate on and also expand kind of our addressable market beyond just the U.S. operators. Fair enough, fair enough. And a funny story from WDS is uh, that me and Robin Reed were sitting, uh, having lunch uh, randomly in the bar at, uh, at WDS and uh, Robin had just been pitched uh, this company that he wasn't like that keen on. And I think randomly uh, you kind of joined our little group and it became a little bit of a pitch between you and Robin. He was interested <laughs> to hear your product. And uh, yeah. that obviously then turned out to eventually lead to that investment. It was a very random encounter, right, between you guys and... Yeah, it was D- Davis Catlin, I think, who, uh, right. who was also sitting with you guys. And he was like, hey, Tomas, come, show, show your product to Robert. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very serendipitous uh, encounter. Funny how do things happen. Uh, exactly. Also, just to linger on uh, this a little bit more, uh, you, you talked as well previously about the importance of like the social experience uh, in, in the product as well. Um, how do you integrate like a social experience in, a, in, an, in an app that is so simple that is generally usually like a kind of like a yes or no question. Like, first of all, like, why do you want to complicate the product a bit more with these additional features? Uh, why not just focus on simplicity? 
So. Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, it may stem from how I discovered microbetting or invented it, right? You said you either discovered or invented it. So how I discovered or invented it is I have a lot of friends uh, that are spread out all around the world, and they're all fans of different football teams. So I'm a big Real Madrid fan. I have lots of Barcelona fans. And anytime those two teams play, what are we doing? We're in a group chat making bets with each other. Sergio Ramos gets a yellow card. Well, guess what? It's very likely he's going to get a red card, right? So there's a $50 bet flying across that group. And so for me, my personal experience was that social, being able to consume that experience with other people digitally uh, was a very nice compliment from a user standpoint. And I think from an operator standpoint, what social does is it keeps people in the product. Right. Typically, you take any operator product. I go in, I make a bet. There's no more value left there for me. So I'm going to switch and go someplace else. And typically, that someplace else is Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, whatever. But now, if you want to serve that person another bet 30 seconds later, you have to reacquire them somehow. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to push notify them 300 times during a game? You can't do that. So social creates a buffer in between micro markets that people can kind of stick around whether they participate or just consume the chat. And the chat essentially is a big group chat. It's a, it's a big WhatsApp group uh, to, to simplify it. Um, the chat is entertaining. So it creates a baseline level of entertainment value. And while folks are consuming that, somebody's talking trash about Haaland versus Ibrahimovic, right? So to you, that's interesting. You might be writing a message. <laughs> Haaland has nothing on Ibra. And while you're doing that, here's the next bet, right? Oh, corner kick, uh, you know, City are now on nine. Can they get to 10 corner kicks by minute 15 in the game or something, right? And, and what just happened is you were inadvertently subscribed to the next market, right? But if you were somewhere else, you would miss that next market. So keeping folks on the platform is very important. And I think social does that. Fair enough, fair enough. And I, I, I suppose it also ties together with creating networking effects in the product as well, uh, where obviously users, uh, uh, users attracting other users by inviting their friends for that purpose, I suppose. Right, so you got to make it, I think, like our key is we're not going to be a product where the sharps and the kind of the biggest uh, sports bettors are going to be using it. This is more for the mass market, right? How do you make sports betting a mass market? And I think it, it has to boil down to the entertainment value that it provides, right? People can't lose too much money. And so that's where the binary kind of solves it. And people can't have a dull experience. So if you make that experience fun and exciting for them, that's the best way to attract more users. That's the best way to get those organic referrals, right? Because, and we see that in free to play all the time. People say, you know, I started, I picked this up in the Chicago Bulls app and now my whole family plays. Well, why do they play? It's because you had so much fun. You told your entire family to join as well. Cool, cool. Um, I don't want to talk too much about simple bet and, and better today, but it is the elephant in the room to some extent. And, you know, simple bet, they raised um, the seed round was like $15 million or something like that. Uh, second round, $30 million. Uh, so totally raised capital $45 million. Uh, better than the B2C operation, raised another $50 million with uh, Jake Paul behind it. Um, on your side, obviously, Tomas, you, you raised a couple of million. Uh, how do you expect to compete against uh, this like very, like, yeah, obviously much better funded uh, product, uh, so to say, that has a couple of years ahead? 
Yeah, look, I think, first of all, our products are a little bit different uh, in, the, in the first place. And secondly, uh, just like any athlete, I think the best competition is with yourself. It's not by looking at somebody else or what they're doing. It's, it's what are we doing? Are, are we on the right strategy? Do we have the right team? Are we executing well against our plan? And so far, we've done that really well. We were self-funded for the first two years, right? So in reality, we were nothing compared to uh, other companies, but uh, from a funding standpoint, but we executed really well, and uh, our fundraising efforts have been pretty good of late. And you know, had we wanted more capital, we probably could have raised it. But there's also uh, a negative side to raising too much, right? So we actually capped our last round, which was already oversubscribed. We probably could have raised twice the amount of capital. But I think capital doesn't necessarily define uh, your success alone, right? What defines your success is your merit. And so our merit is grounded in a very clear-cut vision, a team that believes that vision, and uh, what we're seeing now from the market, a, a pretty good product market fit. I always joke that most startups have this problem where they don't have a sticky product and they're throwing things at the wall trying to see what sticks. We have the opposite of that problem. We have so much demand and we are constantly just building to satisfy that demand, right? Different sports, different types of as I said, you know, uh, vendor licenses where we have customers that are ready to go, but we don't have a license, etc. So uh, we just got to execute. And I think um, looking at ourselves is probably the better strategy than looking outwards. You're in good company on that front. Uh, I think it was uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon uh, who always talks about uh, that many companies, they make the mistake of being competitor obsessed. So they think more about the, what the, is the competition doing. But uh, Jeff Bezos, he keeps uh, saying that uh, you should be a customer obsessed. That's the yeah. only thing that matters. What is the customer thinking about? Not, what the, not necessarily what the competitor is, uh, is doing. So it seems like you are in healthy uh, company in that regard. Conviction, right? You have, to be, you have to have conviction in what you're doing because if you are focused on competitors, then you're suddenly going to change your strategy all the time. And is that good? I don't know, right? I think if it's working, why change it, right? Like it's, I, I always use sports as a great analogy to business. You know, you have teams like Real Madrid that have a certain play, style of play, and Liverpool that has a different style of play, and Guardiola City has it. And so it works for all of them, right? You just, if you change it constantly, it's not going to work. Fair enough. Uh, so, you recently managed to raise uh, this second uh, round of capital, I think, um, in the uh, in the in the press release, it's a, it's a two million dollars that you you managed to raise from the likes of uh, Yolo and Happy Hour, which uh, obviously we we share the same investors here. We are in the in the same family, so to say. Um, obviously, these two these two investors are some of the most respected and highly regarded investors of the iGaming industry. Um, but the the road to close the investment was. Uh, uh, fairly long. I mean, uh, like, like I said, you you had these uh, two years, and you did raise one round early in 2022 as well. Uh, but can you talk about your experience in these two uh, years? Like, why why didn't you raise capital earlier? And when you decided to raise capital, how was the um, how was the experience? But, but, and, and just as a closing point here, the the first capital you raised was just at the uh, at the beginning of 2022, where the economy was still in a good place, and then second. Uh, round of funding was uh, obviously closed in November of 2022 uh, when the economy had kind of gone sideways uh, a little bit, at least from an investment point of view. So I'm very curious to hear your story here on the um, raising capital journey. Yeah, I, I think it's a good, I, I hope that some of the younger entrepreneurs listening will kind of take 
some of these lessons to heart. Um, we raised two years into the business, not necessarily for lack of trying. You know, we at most points of the journey after about year one have thought about, well, we, we have something, right? We knew we had something based on kind of the customer feedback and the user feedback. Um, but it took a while to, because I've never raised capital before. And so you got to, it's, it's an art as well, right? So it's an art of telling your story concisely, executing, showing people that you're constantly progressing and, and evolving and getting better at what it is that you do. And uh, the big mistake that I've made, and I really hope that this lesson kind of stays with some folks who are listening, is I went to the general VC world and said, hey, this is what I'm working on. And that probably cost me six months to a year of time because I really shouldn't have done that. Where, the, where I think we should have gone right away and where we eventually ended up is with the industry, right? There's a lot of very smart, high net worth individuals, funds, uh, even operators that have their own funds that had we just gone to them right away, we probably would have been in a far, far kind of better place from a timing standpoint on our fundraisers. And for me, the catalyst became kind of getting a few advisors in the door. So Benji Cherniak, huge shout out. He was one of the first guys that kind of took us under his wing and said, I like what you're doing. I'm going to help you out, make some introductions. And that was the catalyst to uh, our success. And so Benji, you know, uh, an OG of the industry, again, huge shout out to him. Uh, and from there, Love we kind of said, you know, no more Andreessen's and everything else. Like, it's just a waste of time, right? People don't understand the business. They don't understand how to make money. And sometimes they want returns that are not necessarily uh, similar to what a B2B company might return, right? So a 10x to a huge venture fund in San Francisco is not as exciting as it might be to a Benji, right? Uh, right. But the company nonetheless needs capital. So why not go and fish where the fish are? versus where the fancy fish are that you are never going to catch. Um, so that's kind of the first, the first because uh, your, your question was multi-part. Right. Uh, and so we raised our first round as a million dollars on uh, 10 posts. And then we started to get some good traction. So getting into um, uh, going to a lot of conferences, participating in a lot of pitch competitions, we consciously avoided the accelerator path because we always thought that we were a little bit past that point. Um, but the pitch competitions were great. And I always said this to every other founder that was there. It's, it's as much a fundraising exercise as a customer building exercise, right? When you go out there and you kind of pitch your story and tell people what you're doing. And, and it's been fantastic for us. And lo and behold, we do our first one and we fail. <laughs> we, we don't win. And so it's like, you know, you're sad, but it's a good uh, milestone to take a look uh, inwards and reflect, you know, are we worthy of winning? And if not, if the answer is no, and you're being honest with yourself, you know, why? And so then we did another uh, pitch competition. This was uh, the first two were at SBC. F failed to win that as well. Again, take another introspective <laughs> look. Why didn't we win? And luckily, then we do our third one at SBC. We win. And then I go to um, uh, your conference in Valletta. And I do the uh, the hot six. It's not a competition per se. It's more of a session where six companies showcase their products. And Robin Reed is in the room. He's he's one of the panelists. <laughs> and you know, so I I, I I do my fifteen minute spiel. 
come off and then I, I catch Robin at the end of it because he asked some good questions and a couple of weeks later we had our uh, our big investor in our in our round so it, it was great and I think again networking uh, having obviously a good product having a good level of traction is extremely important uh, and getting in front of these folks early because based on your story right we've met initially in June at WGS but Robin he kind of liked us but I'm sure he has a lot of companies that he looks at. And then fast forward to October, was it? I yeah. think it was October. Yeah. You know, October, we, we meet again, and then we close that round very quickly after that. So staying on, being present, uh, continuing to tell your story and making sure that there's a, an actual progression arc in your story, I think, are the, the key ingredients. I find it so interesting as well, the fact that, Tomas, you don't have a history in the agony industry. And... Um, Oftentimes, this industry is very based on your reputation, your background. Uh, have you proven yourself to some extent uh, earlier in the industry and so on? And so I suppose, as you mentioned here earlier, to, uh, to then get someone like Benji uh, Cherniak on board as uh, your strategic advisor who has that reputation, who can put his name on your product and who can open the, the right doors uh, so that you can get the right meetings and so on. Uh, must be more or less essential for for someone like yourself than coming in, you know, trying a venture for the first time. Absolutely, and it was it was not just Benji, right? It was Benji was kind of the conduit to some other folks. Lloyd Danzig, another huge shout out to him. He was right. awesome. And Lloyd, I I really just I <laughs> I reached out to Lloyd and said, Hey, Lloyd, uh, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. Here's what I'm working on, and uh, we just kind of bonded over this vision of micro betting and. Uh, the future and then ended up doing a couple of fun things with uh, <laughs> we actually did a panel together and this was during COVID where we played FIFA we, we recorded a um, a session and instead of just talking <laughs> like this we played FIFA and we talked about micro betting right. so, so we did some fun things and yeah I think yeah. reputation is, is critical but uh, reputation is something you have to work for initially right so uh, you got to start somewhere and I think that's if you just got to take it, take it seriously. And so that's what, that's what I did. I, I was not in this industry at all, but, uh, step by step, you establish yourself. And again, you just got to have traction and show that you're executing and people will recognize that. There's a lot of talk around the pitch deck when you go to raise uh, investment. So kind of like your CV for the company, if you will. Um, and mm. also, you know, your pitch for the company, obviously. What do you think uh, now as you've gone through this process a couple of times? How important is the pitch deck and what is the perfect pitch deck in your opinion? It's definitely not one with a lot of information. <laughs> the, my first pitch decks, oh man, there were so many slides and details. And what I realized ultimately was um, people are not buying your company. People are betting on you to succeed. And so the goal is different. You don't need to relay every little bit of information. What you need to do is tell them a concise enough story that they can understand and they can believe in and show to them that you are going to be successful because ultimately any investor is just betting on your success. They're not buying your company. They don't need to know every little detail about your company and your vision and strategy, especially because sometimes that strategy changes. So uh, the pitch deck I think is key, but it's sort of what it tells, right? It's, it's that that story has to be very concise. And it frankly took me a long time to figure out how to do that well. And uh, luckily I did, because if I hadn't, you know, if you look at some of my earlier decks, it was a complete nightmare. 
<laughs> fun to see you play by play how they how they look like at some point. Yeah, yeah so much information. Yeah. Nobody's looking past slide two. I, I could just I, I I go back sometimes and I'm like, whoever read through to the end, thank you very much because this is a lot. <laughs> and and so you know. You've been in a lot of meetings with a lot of different investors uh, from the industry, outside industries, major VCs, you know, and um, and and in between. Uh, is there a red thread in what the investors are looking for when they consider a investment, uh, or do they all come in from widely different angles? So for us, again, I go back to my notion of not fishing where the fancy fish are. I've talked to them all and the common denominator was people from the industry really all have the same sort of common understanding and insights to establish whether you're going to be a successful business or not. General funds that don't focus on our vertical tend to ask a lot of questions and might even like it, but the way that funds work, right, is you have one partner that has to take it to the rest of the partners. and so the road to getting an actual deal done is so complicated it most of the time will fall through so working with industry folks is probably key for any startup in the space because they just get it right and and i'm not saying that they're going to write you a check but they will understand what you're up to much much better and be able to give you that kind of feedback and we've had some folks look at us and say hey you know we're not sure you have competitors who are better funded, et cetera, and that's great, right? Or we want to see additional traction, which to me is always a not a negative, it's a positive, right? Like if we don't have your conviction yet, we're going to get it because we're we're going with or without you, right? We're, we're going to execute no matter who backs us. And uh, making sure that you execute, though, is the key, right? If you can show folks execution, I think that that gives you the reputation that or and the confidence from your investors to to back you on the next steps. And I suppose that's possibly the most difficult part of being an entrepreneur is uh, you know coming up with an idea. Anyone can come up with an idea that is great on paper, but how mm-hmm. do you execute that idea especially when you have so limited funds, you know? Uh, how do you attract talent when you don't when you can't afford to pay as high wages as your established competitors for example? How how was your journey uh, as a uh, when you started out as an entrepreneur, how did you gain foothold here? Because there must have been a lot of challenges for you to even get started. Including COVID, right? We launched three right. weeks before COVID. And in retrospect, COVID was a blessing. But at the time, it was so scary. But I'm extremely glad that we launched because COVID was a moment that tested my conviction, right? We weren't sure sports were going to come back. We weren't sure if humanity was going to survive. Like if you... <laughs> Go back That's to true. April, right? It was very, very scary times. Yeah. And so should you be working on a startup or kind of having your last days with your family? It's a <laughs> question. Um, and luckily for me, we had already launched and seen this incredible fanfare from the end users, from you know our, our initial partners uh, around the product. And I, I knew that at some point, if sports do come back, we, we, we were onto something. Um, and I don't necessarily recommend this for folks, but being bootstrapped and operating on our own kind of capital is a great habit to establish, or it, it, yeah, it establishes great habits, right? Because you, capital tends to make you a bit loose from a 
from a financial standpoint, right? Oh yeah, we can invest in this. We can, but when you don't have it, you have to focus yeah. on the core things. And so for us being self-funded and bootstrapped for the first couple of years really created some strong habits around not having waste, around being able to focus on things that are important, prioritize, knowing that you're not going to get everything, but making bets on what will be impactful and focusing on that one thing. Uh, and I think we've carried that through to now. And that may be part of the reason or part of the answer to your earlier question of how will we compete? Well, we just, we've never been a bloated organization. We don't necessarily need $40 million to make a good product and sell it. Right. The, the, uh, the entrepreneurial journey is riddled with obstacles and dragons and fire and pain. I, I, and, and especially for you starting out just a month before COVID and seemingly the rug being pulled, on, pulled under you now operating in an environment which d- d- doesn't need this product essentially. Uh, yeah. Did you have moments where you're thinking of giving up? Yeah, for sure. When the credit line was maxed out and things like that, for sure. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, because you're yeah. self-funded, right? So you put in your own yeah. savings into this product. Yeah. Yeah, self-funded for the first couple of years. Again, I, I don't necessarily recommend it to folks, but if you can do it and come That's hardcore. It, 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 That's it a pure some, entrepreneur. <laughs> I like that. It, it gives you some good habits. Um, there was uh, recently somebody asked me because they're, they're, um, they're mentoring a, a, a founder and they said, what, what book should they read? You know, is it like zero to one or whatever? Right. And I said, to be honest with you, a good book for an entrepreneur to read is The Alchemist. <laughs> or something Paolo, else that, Paolo, yeah, yeah, Paulo Coelho, or anything about the journey, uh, a difficult journey and conviction that gets you through that journey. Because every every story is different, right? And the obstacles that I faced may not be faced by another entrepreneur, but being staying convicted and also having a very honest, introspective look at certain milestones and saying, like, do people really like my product? Do people really want to buy my product? Will I make money? Do I have a good team? Am I a good leader? Am I capable at this thing or am I capable in this particular aspect of my business, right? Being honest with yourself on those things and if the answers are yes, staying convicted, is probably the best advice, right? And, and that's, uh, I think a lot of folks don't do one or the other and, and fail. You know, like I'll give you a, another anecdote. When we launched um, pre-COVID, we initially rolled out to the New York Islanders Reddit fan base because they said, let's, let's kind of, let's micro soft launch this. And so we roll it out and we see this incredible engagement and two weeks go by and they said, this is great. Okay, let's go live. We'll have TV ads and push notifications and everything. And I realized, oh my God, we just had the most engaged user group for that sports scene, right? Because if you're on the subreddit, you're probably a major fan of that team. And now we're going to democratize it to everybody else. My engagement is going to drop. And I literally took a moment there to to ask myself, if it does drop, should I keep going? Right? Because if it did, well, clearly people don't want my product. And it takes a little bit of kind of guts to have those conversations with you versus just blindly carrying through. Lucky for us, when we democratized it, it actually went up even more because of the kind of the scale that it brought in the chat and everything else that kind of got folks together. So we didn't have that problem. But being uh, honest with yourself along the journey is very important. Yeah, there is an interesting dichotomy there, right? Where 
on the one hand, as an entrepreneur, you need to have an aspect of delusion as part of your personality because the road ahead is going to be so unreasonably difficult that no sane person would ever go on it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and most likely you're going to fail. So like you will most likely experience pain and then you will fail. Right. And then yeah. you will be left with, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the shame of failing, so to say, but, uh, and so to go on that journey, you need that conviction as you're talking about, like believe in the product, like even if you have a bad day, keep going, so on and so forth. But the dichotomy is that you also need to know when it is time to give up, like when it's actually time, like this is actually not working out because we, we have, um, we have a family friend who, uh, who ended up going on this journey and, you know, 20 years later is still committed to make this, uh, venture work and just bleeding money, like has bloody family's money dry, has bloody friend's money dry, you know, and it's just in a, he has committed himself to the point where if he now quits 20 years later, it is like, you know, the, the curtain drops, you know, it's like you come back to reality. So it's almost like you committed to go through to carry on because you yeah. don't want to face reality. I think that's yeah. a dichotomy and uh, entrepreneurship is like balancing that. It's a dangerous sure. journey sometimes. I, I agree, but that's why it's almost like a stop loss in trading stocks, right? Like if you don't have it, you're going to go to zero. So you need to, in advance, set up the kind of the, the proof points, right? If, if I can see this, I will go on. But if I don't see this, then I will stop. And, yes. and that gives you that early exit where you're not going to burn the entire position, but you burn, you know, 10%, 15% or whatever of your position. So you, and you have to be honest with yourself on those things, right? Yeah. You need to have those stop losses, whether it's 10%, 20 or whatever, that's up to you, right? But if you don't have that, yeah, it's, it's, it could be very, very dangerous. And so for us, luckily, it never hit those marks, right? I, there were difficult times, COVID, it's things we controlled, things we didn't control, but we never saw this uh, user or partner feedback that said, this is not for us. This is not good. You know, this is exactly. not the and, and also perhaps, you know, you mentioned earlier here that COVID was a blessing for you guys. And um, it seems counterintuitive when COVID actually caused the sports betting market to retract for quite some time. But I suppose that um, the opportunity or the blessing in that environment is that the carpet was pulled out from all your potential competitors and and the whole industry at once. So that it was kind of like uh, everything was up in the air for a while. And from that comes opportunity, perhaps as well, even if there's a drawback. And, and then there's a certain type of personality who will then take advantage of that. And there's another personality who will give up at that point as well, I suppose. Well, you know, where I think COVID helped us the most is it created this um, blank slate. I remember May 2020, we're talking to different providers and operators and everyone's basically saying, we don't have anything for folks to bet on. So now we're looking for new solutions. And, yeah. and that gave us a lot of good intros that normally people wouldn't have taken the meeting because they would be too busy doing something. But suddenly everyone's kind of at a standstill trying to figure out, well, what can we do? What are the solutions that are out there? And, you know, nobody took our solution, but it gave us the initial introduction to come back later on and say, hey, by the way, now we've done this, now we've done this, now we've reached this milestone and established those early relationships on the kind of real money betting side. And then on the sports side, it was great because, well, they had no fans in arenas anymore. So they needed digital assets. 
And we became a great kind of digital fan engagement solution for the pro sports world and very quickly went from, you know, one sports team to dozens that we have now. Fantastic, Thomas. I, I love that, uh, the, the journey that you've had, uh, you know, through very difficult times and, uh, you know, you, you got yourself to this point, obviously, close to funding with some of the most respected investors of the industry. And um, uh, it, it, it seems like there is a fantastic opportunity here now to, to do something great. And so on that note as well, to start running off a bit today, um, what comes next for Curious Boys now? What is, the, um, what is the roadmap for 2023 and when are you expecting to go live with uh, Real Money Play? Yeah, so Q1, hopefully by end of Q1, we should be live in a couple of uh, different jurisdictions, Europe, North America, maybe even LATAM. Uh, and really, the yeah, the path is just that, just do more and more and more of that, uh, you know, continue to build and iterate on our product, uh, maybe add some new sports. Let's see how that goes. Uh, today, we cover, you know, the four major sports in America, plus football. So it's really more of the same. You know, the strategy, as I said, is, has been uh, the same for a while and that conviction remains. And so it's just close more operator deals, launch our product in more jurisdictions and start to have some real money gaming revenue coming in, which is kind of the big milestone for us, right? It's, it's been a long journey. And so we're very much looking forward to that milestone. Tomas, I'm looking forward to following the journey and uh, thank you so much for giving me your valuable time today. Uh, I will see you in New York in a couple of months uh, and yes. hopefully we can have one or four margaritas together and follow <laughs> up on the conversation at that time. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thank you so much, Tomas. Bye-bye.